and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got tons of IBC stuff to discuss, and I said discuss so multiple much. times because discuss is the thing I discuss. Devin, what have you been up to, man? <laughs> oh, uh, I was doing some audio work for CBS up in Northern Illinois, and that's why I missed uh, last week's podcast, unfortunately. And uh, this week, though, I've just been shooting some indie artists in around Chicagoland, and uh which eventually will get roped into uh, part of their live performance. So uh, just basic interviews and stuff like that. Nothing uh, too exciting, really. What's up with you? I wish I had something really exciting to report, but instead I'm just reporting that I've been editing nonstop, continuously for the last couple of forever, actually. In fact, I'm editing after this podcast. I will continue to work up until October when my project is due. Uh, never, ever book two feature lengths simultaneously because that really never. sucks. Also, I got this thing right here. I'm reaching uh, for the audio listeners. I'm pulling out the most hipster BS thing that one could ever own, but I own it Uh-oh. right here. Uh-oh. Look at this. It's made out of wood. Isn't that stupid? Oh, it's so trendy. I know, oh, right? But- uh, the so hipster this, oozes from your fingertips. I know. I feel a little dirty about it. But this in front of me right here, uh, for those of you listening, is the uh, LX100 from Panasonic. This is a Micro Four Thirds-esque point-and-shoot camera. And underneath of it, I have this JB Designs camera mount. Now, this seems silly, and it is a little bit silly, but I'll tell you one thing that makes this not so silly. And that's the fact that the quarter 20 right here is located off to the side. So if you look at the battery compartment here and uh, where the memory card is kept, if you have this where it normally belongs, the the quick release plate, it actually covers those up. So you have to unscrew this every time you need to get to the battery or to the memory card. With this, I can suddenly move this over to the side. And now I have access to that on an easy to get to words and stuff. But... (laughs) The that fact is... that you bought a whole grip for it must mean that you're really enjoying your LX100. Oh, man. Okay, so I I ordered the E1 uh, on Kickstarter, which is not ordering, by the way. You never order something on Kickstarter. You hope that you get it. So I did that like six months ago and because I've been using my Hero 4 Black Edition for some 4K shots where I just need to throw a small camera in the corner or do something like that. But the lack of anything other than super wide has been driving me nuts, and it made me break down and pick this guy up. Uh, 4K internally, great low-light performance, good all the way up to... I was shooting at 2,000 ISO uh, this weekend with it, and it eh, footage came out phenomenally for such a tiny mm-hmm. little camera. And the zoom range, 24 to 75, definitely handy. F1.7 at the wide, so you can still blur out the background again a bit nice and i got this for 475 on e or on uh, craigslist so as opposed to the 700 for the e1 camera exactly that never come well actually i got that <laughs> one i was one of the first 50 so i got that for like 400 or 500 i think oh yeah but i don't know if it does come that will be exactly what i want but until then mm-hmm. this is kind of the stopgap plus You know, if I want to hand a camera over to my wife to take some photos or something like that, this is just the right form factor for her to get, like, good photos, but not have to worry about all the hubbub that goes along with a regular DSLR. So, uh, Mm -hmm. very nice, very well built. Only wish it had an audio input, but I guess I'll be using external audio with that guy. Now, that's enough with that because I've got a lot to cover. Devin's got a lot to cover. We have all these IBC announcements. So, Devin, what do you think? Time for the news? News! Time for the news! First on the list here is actually something I'm excited about, and Devin does not seem to be very excited about it at all. This is the <laughs> Road Link news shooter kit now this is an xlr audio adapter setup works with the road link system if you're not familiar with the road link system basically they're using wi-fi to transmit audio from your belt pack to your camera body and then into your camera itself now there are a few interesting key features to this and first i want to do some show and tell so before we start complaining not complaining about this Right here in my hand is a very expensive Sennheiser SKP G-Series Tried and true. Kit. I prefer tried and true, not expensive. These guys are great. <laughs> they're nice and solid. They're made out of metal. But they have a number of things that irritate the hell out of me. Uh, number one, you can't adjust the audio 
on the fly in this in any easy manner. So you have to go kind of scroll through menus and push a bunch of buttons, and that kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. The other thing is no fan of power in this thing, which is frustrating because sometimes you want to like. I don't know, slap it on something like my uh, 4073 right here and power it up so that I can just use it remotely with like a, a boom in my hand or something like that. Now, the Roadlink News Shooter solves those issues and adds a few extra features. Now, Devin, before I dive into the features, tell sure. me why you hate this thing already. <laughs> uh, well, a few things first. I haven't found a, a what I would call a reliable test of the... Uh, road system I, I mean i've seen a lot of reviews and i've seen a lot of people go look i can walk you know 200 feet away and it sounds great and it works amazingly but none of these are a crowded conference center i want to see somebody using this stuff at nab and see how far they get because 2.4 gigahertz even with clever technology auto jumping frequencies and everything else is a very busy spectrum because everyone has permission to use it your g2 g3 system from sennheiser is uh like a uhf or something like that yeah they're all uhf man you don't want vhs or vhf (laughs) in that sort of range because it's just not strong enough it isn't and and so those have very i mean those are allowed uh by licensing and stuff like that allowed to send a lot more power they're allowed to um uh, intermingle and there isn't a whole lot of competing frequencies besides you know a few channels and stuff like that may busy up some of the frequencies and you may have other people using it as opposed to 2.4 you've got microwaves wireless phones you got cell phones with wi-fi you got tablets you've got a lot of stuff using 2.4 and so while everyone keeps showing how far away they can walk with it outside i've never seen somebody like use it in an apartment complex or use it anywhere else where 2.4 traffic is being hammered and that's the real test that i've been searching for and trying to see for me you see this as an option to throw onto a boom pole which i think is clever with headphone monitoring and have a completely wireless sound guy for me personally maybe i'm old-fashioned i'd rather have the sound recorder in the sound guy's lap with a boom pole and then wirelessly send that audio over to the camera. So then I'm not really concerned about, you know, being able to have a headphone amp or uh, an easy way to turn it up and down or anything like that. I will say, I really don't like the menu system on the Sennheiser. They, they've kept it's it awful, from right? ages ago. Yeah. You flip through it. It's not, it doesn't exactly make sense because everything's abbreviated. So sometimes you got to read the manual. It is a little frustrating to say the least. So I love Road coming in here being like, hey, here's a dedicated button to do this. Here's a dedicated button to do this. It's so easy to use. And I'm like, yes. So. Devin's uh, not kidding still, either for the video yeah. listener or video watchers here. Here is one of the Sennheiser units. There's two buttons. Underneath yeah. of this flap here uh, is is two buttons that you have to like long press and set and then like click through menus in order to get to the thing. And there, it's not labeled volume. It's labeled DB. I mean, obviously, we're smart enough to figure that out and we know that. But sure. if you're a novice or you're just starting out with audio gear, you're like, what the hell is the DB menu? And then you're scrolling through mm-hmm. trying to set the volume on this and it's like button, 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 button. And then if you don't yep. hold it down, it won't bring you back to the main menu again. And these are really good. The audio quality is great, but frustrating to use. And sure. Of course, as we mentioned above, uh, and pricey. Before. Yeah, they are, they are they are pricey. I mean, they're they're built to work. They're tried and true uh, for that prosumer market. I mean, you can pay well, more than that pro, and get slightly better uh, market. Well, yeah, I, I guess this is mid range pro before you go to like what the Lex Lexco Lex. What's the yeah. L uh, Lexicon or something? Lexicon, like, yeah, because those are like two yeah. grand. About, yeah, and they they go up from there. One thing I will say that I'm kind of pleasantly surprised with is the the is that like a, a lav adapter or something like that or is that the headphone jack on top of it uh, okay referring to the picture of so the xlr adapter let's take a closer look at the features now that we've kind of discussed both of our <laughs> opinions on wireless systems here i'm gonna go ahead and share my screen guys so you can see what's going on um if you look right here at the top you'll see a little screw in device right here and that's a lav adapter so the, the things that make uh, this uh, news shooter kit from Rode really interesting to me, A, it provides phantom power, which is really nice. B, mm-hmm. it has an external LAV input so that you can use this as a belt pack like you would with a regular unit. So it's not just locked in for XLR inputs. It's, it's basically able to do double duty there. Now, it has a little flip-up uh, screen 
piece there that you can get to the controls and you can easily adjust the volume up and down for your input source. It has 24 and 48 volt phantom power, so you can save a little bit of battery power if you want. And speaking of batteries, on top of being able to run off of two AA batteries, you can also use Sony NP batteries or power it via the USB port. It also has a headphone output so that you can monitor your audio that's coming into the device before it goes back to the camera. Now, that's not the best solution out there because you won't be able to hear what's at the camera, but hopefully if you have someone paying a little bit of attention to what's going in the camera, you're probably in pretty good shape. Well, once you set levels, you know, it's it, that's one thing is that, like, um, unlike some pro gear, this won't give you tone. Uh, but in general, if you set your levels before you go and record or something like that, then... Uh, as long as the sound guy who's listening through the headphones makes sure that he's not blowing anything out, the camera guy should be fine. So I do like the battery features. It's not like the features, I find anything wrong with the features. I think just at the core, that 2.4 gigahertz, I don't know if I can trust it yet until I actually get my hands on use it because the price is right. That's part of the pricing too, is the fact that they're using uh, 2.4 gigahertz radio and technology, which has become super cheap because there's so many people producing that technology as opposed to the licensing and everything else you need in order to do UHF, uh, like the Sennheiser systems and Sony, I think has a few of those, uh, that nobody talks about and stuff. So, uh, it's, it's not that, especially the MP battery thing. I love that the USB part I could care less about. And the same thing too, like the lava adapter, I'm sure it's terribly convenient, but you know, my lavs have XLRs on them already, or if they don't, it's a, a road system with that micro twist, whatever they call that thing, where I put an XLR on my lav. So e- either way, I, it's this doesn't really have any huge features for me, except for the phantom power. I will say, oh, that's kind of nice and that's kind of new. But DJ over there, all of his all of his lobs have a three point five mil, and he refuses to use anything else. Yeah, so. I don't I don't like the clunkiness of an XLR to lav adapter. So all of mine, and this is the traditional Sennheiser twist lock unit, but it, they're all uh, three point five millimeters. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree one hundred percent with you, Devin, that I would not trust Wi Fi frequencies for any kind of busy spectrum heavy area so if i'm going to a conference definitely not if i'm going to some kind of apartment complex like you mentioned definitely not i'm going to go with my sennheiser system but where this is beautiful and really nice is what happens if you're you know out in the woods shooting some kind of i don't know a horror movie of some kind or you know (laughs) what if you're uh filming like an interview at uh you know a hotel somewhere where you know you're not going to be overwhelmed with a ton of stuff or maybe Mm -hmm. you're out shooting about in you know an urban environment where you're sort of away from buildings and people but uh close to a few signals but not enough to overwhelm you this allows you to basically go poor man on your boom kit without having to have an external recorder, sure. a bunch of extra kit and everything else. And now you can just put your headphones on, hook this onto your boom and walk around while your camera guy has free reign to go wherever he wants. I, I agree. It could definitely speed things up uh, during the production environment. And I'm not saying that the 2.4 gigahertz may not work in these environments. I'm just saying that no one has, as far as I have seen, and I've searched a lot, uh, no one has tested it. I would love to see somebody test it. I'd love to get my hands on it. There's locations I could go to test it. Everyone always tests it by like going down their driveway and, you know, going over to, you know, the next cul-de-sac over. And I'm like, that's not a real test. Um, You know, I want to make sure this works in any environment. So maybe Rode has found some kind of magic 2.4 gigahertz voodoo that allows them to work fantastically even in these environments. It's just they haven't shown it off and I haven't seen anyone else test it. So I don't know, as opposed to UHF, which everyone Sony uses and Sennheiser uses and Assure uses it a lot, too, for a lot of stage stuff that they're popular with. Uh, I know that 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 works reliably in almost every situation. And there's enough frequency band that even if you're kind of by a broadcast TV antenna or something like that, you'll find room in the spectrum for yourself. So as well as being at conventions and uh, even something like NAB. I can tell you one of the tricks I think that they're using on this and uh, is probably why it's a little more reliable and they're able to get it out so fast and kind of beat a few companies to the comp or to the punch. Uh, the band that they're normally using, it, it's capable of sending stereo audio uh, across that mm-hmm. spectrum because they're digitizing it and then they're sending it over 2.4 gigahertz and then back to your device. But they're only sending a single audio channel and what they're doing with that other channel 
is most likely packing in error correction bits to rebuild any lost packets as it goes through. And at the meantime, mm-hmm. sending channel switch information between the two devices so that it says, okay, you know, I'm on this portion of the 2.4 gigahertz uh, frequency range and that's getting filled up. I need to move to channel seven or I need to move to channel six sure. or I need to move to channel five. And that's sure. not perfect because if everybody's all over the place, you're still going to have no free bandwidth to jump to. And then it's just a matter of whose transmitter is strongest and, you know, whose Correct. receiver is picking up the correct signal but uh, by doing that you can kind of cover a lot of your basis and when they say news shooter i mean i think of this this would be great for you know a really small news crew like a two-man crew going out to shoot some quick stuff out you know a lady has a gas made explode in front of her house like okay guess mm-hmm. what you're gonna be out in the middle of the street you're probably away from high density uh, Wi-Fi areas. You can go out yeah. and shoot the screaming lady like, oh, this is incredible. I can't believe this happened. Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> get that. And then like, bam, you're done. And for the price, $4.99, you know, I could buy two of these, just about two of these for the price mm-hmm. of one of my Sennheiser kits right here. So right, will it replace no. it? Probably not. But will it be a good second unit for a lot of things? And for people who are on a, a tight budget, you know, this does give you the law of option as well as the XLR option. And, and as, as silly be... as it sounds, the Sony NP option is probably one of my favorite things about it because yeah, I've got tons super of those cool, for right? my lights. A lot of, you know, and in this price range, I think a lot of people who shoot around this price range for their camera gear and lighting gear and everything else, that's the kind of batteries they got. Most of, you know, the LED kits that, you know, you get from China or something like that, most of them are Sony MP. And there's also still some fantastic lights you can get uh, that uh, have NP adapters or somehow let you use Sony MP. So just the fact that it's kind of like lets me use that and it's not like, because the last thing that I need double char- or AA rechargeables for is my wireless audio kit. Everything else in my setup, uh, minus like a gold mount battery for you know the entire rig and all that kind of stuff, but everything else for my lights and all that is MP if it's not a gold mount. And then I've got a couple of double A's around for this, <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah. it's kind of cool to be like, Oh, Hey, I, for at least for the wireless part, I can toss uh, an MP in there. And cause I've always got a couple of those charged up ready to go. So I think I, I, it's one of those, I'd love to get my hands on it and try it out and see how well the system works and really stress it. Uh, I, I do think that the features are cool, uh, but you're right. Maybe it won't replace uh, the G3 and maybe Sennheiser has nothing to worry about as well as those bigger brands. But it's it's good to see something coming to this price point so that other people can have access to this kind of quality. So if we didn't mention pricing, it'll be $4.99. Uh, this will be coming out at the end of the year. They're hoping the end of fourth quarter. Uh, they're also mm-hmm. going to be selling their hip pack, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the basic single units like this by themselves so that you can add one to this kit and the receivers are universal so you can bond them with any other road device so that it is a really nice extra upgrade option at 150 or 200 dollars and now you have yeah and if if all you need and if all you need is a lav uh uh, you know the filmmaker kit is 400 dollars. it's 100 bucks less if you don't need that phantom power you don't care about the xlr and you just want lav uh you can get it comes with a road mic and it's 400 dollars. so that's a really good price too All right, now moving on down the line to something else that everybody is really excited about. And actually, I mentioned the E1 camera at the top of the show. The reason that E1 camera was so exciting was because people wanted to strap it to their quadcopter. Well, as you probably know, Devin, uh, recently (laughs) DJI joined the M43 consortium and people were wondering what was going to happen. Well, looks like we've got the answer. Here we have the X5 and the X5R. So quick rundown of the specs on this. Basically, it is using the infamous 16 megapixel sensor that we see in most M43 offerings today. That's likely to be the Panasonic chip that's in the GH4. Uh, The X5 is able to shoot a 60 megabit enclosed 4K Video rates, man, I should have written these a little bit better because now I'm having to jump all over the place. Uh, also, we've got a 2.4 gig, um, wow, 2.4 gig lossless 4K on the X5R. It looks like they're going to be using an external SSD to record to. Man, that yeah. is very aggressive. Uh, they've also got their flavor of log. They're calling it D-Log for flat image work. Pricing is roughly 5700 
for the X5 and 9800 for the X5R. The X5 is 5,000 euros, so I just converted those over roughly, guys. So if the numbers are different on B&H, you know, sorry about that. Also, you can buy the unit separately for $1,699, so $1,700, when you get the non-lens version. Or you can buy the one with a lens. I believe it's including the 15 millimeter uh, F1.7 or something like that for about $2,100. Now, that's a lot of stuff to digest. Devin, what do you think about the X5 and X5R? You know what? So far, I've been kind of impressed by uh, what I've been seeing. It definitely feels like it is a Panasonic sensor inside of there because... Uh, I think it has been looking good and it's been looking sharp and it's kind of interesting to see DJI move from a quadcopter company into a camera company. Uh, but I consider this their first real offering. I mean, you know, they, they've had the inspire and stuff like that, but none of that footage ever really stood out to me. This honestly looks like, yeah, now I don't feel like I need to attach a mirrorless camera to, you know, the uh, quadcopter. I attach this because uh, it's just it's greater because it's purpose built, if that makes sense. Uh, the fact that they go, OK, you want raw, you want, you know, lossless this or some kind of compressed raw. Uh, we'll do that. But it's still super small, uh, which means it's not going to take large gimbals, which means it's not going to take a lot of power. And so it seems like the perfect option. And it seems like they're kind of pricing it around what you would normally spend trying to get a gimbal and a camera to work together for this. Um and as well, it's not completely quadcopter only. I mean, you could just use this as kind of a, a cheaper steady cam option or something like that. Um, and the ability to throw a couple of lenses on it. I mean, I'm sure your lens options are pretty limited compared to if you're running your own gear. But uh, the offset, if this means you get, you know, half an hour worth of flying instead of 15 minutes, I think that's going to matter to people a lot more. One of the things that they uh, were very specific about when they were talking about the X5 and X5R is actually your lens choices in general. They mentioned the Olympus 12mm, the Olympus 15, and the Panasonic 15 as your basic choices. And I'm guessing that's because of the balancing on this unit itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only really set up for those sizes and shapes of lenses. Uh, getting the unit separately without the quadcopter, $1699, I mean... I know they had that handle unit for their original sort of GoPro replacement that you could put that on there. And it was a, a battery pack that would also give you a little bit of control for just the gimbal system. So do you think we'll see something like that? Because if we would, you know, 1600 bucks, that's the price of a or 1700 bucks. That's the price of a GH4 roughly. And it's built specifically for image stabilization right, right out of the shoot, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's not it's not going to be the cheapest camera ever, and I wouldn't necessarily suspect that because uh, DJI is uh, you know newer to this camera market, so they're probably trying to make sure that they're making ends meet, and they're not going to do a black magic where they have issues with releasing on time or quality control because those are all things you need to consider when you're starting up a camera company. Uh, I think here it's still going to be a better option because you do have a few lens choices, which I think. Also means you've got some filter choices, which things like polarizing and ND and stuff like that can become very important depending on what you're shooting. Say if you're shooting car and you're trying to get a shot through uh, the glass or something like that. So uh, the fact that you get all those options, you get iris control too. So you can, in, instead of speeding up the shutter rate, uh, which you know always tends to make things look very video-y because you don't have that filmic motion blur that people are looking for when they're doing uh, more narrative content. Uh, it means that, hey, we can close the iris down. We can keep the shutter speed where we like it. We can shoot in the different frame rates that we want to. And I think generally speaking, uh, with the gimbal and everything else, it's going to be a better looking, a better performing package than a GoPro option. Um, you know, the only thing that would be in competition would be something like an E1, which, you know, they don't have, depending on the gimbal you get, you could get a beefier gimbal that allows for bigger lenses or heavier lenses or things like that. So still... I think this is definitely, like most of DJI stuff, marketed towards people who like to bolt on. Not necessarily hack, modify, solder crap together. It's for people who like, I want to screw it in and plug in a plug and then have this awesome camera attached to my quadcopter. So in that respect, I think they're hitting that perfectly. And I think that um, 
they'll probably sell a lot of units. The thing is, I'm just impressed by the look of it. They definitely know what people are looking for with their quadcopter cameras. Even if they are asking maybe more than people think that they should, it still looks to me like uh, they, they've they listened to their customers and their customers say, hey, we want RAW, we want 4K, we want this. And they're giving them everything they can in a super small, very convenient package that I'm, I'm personally just hoping for uh, not just looks great, but also gives you longer flight times because that's always a struggle to try to get high quality stuff uh, in a small package uh, where you're not running an octocopter that, you know, sounds like you've got a helicopter landing in your front lawn every After time you, you take off. gas to keep that thing going yeah. instead of batteries. So so that they're, they're like overall shrinking the package while improving the quality and I th- if they shrink that package too, think about how you get this quality while having a cheaper quadcopter. And maybe the price will start to make more sense than necessarily like, oh, I could get a better option or better camera for cheaper, but then I got to fly a bigger quadcopter to carry it all. So all things to consider. Honestly, if uh, it gets up to the 10 grand range for something like this, I'm going to probably <laughs> hire someone who specializes specifically in flying these things. Especially, too, with that FAA rules. And uh, I think there's only one guy in Chicago who's actually properly licensed by FAA to fly quadcopters for video purposes. Now, a side note, are those mandatory yet? I know they were recommended uh, man- uh, uh, mandates, but not uh, enforced think- as a like last year. I don't know if they are this year or not. I don't, I don't have the facts. I don't have the facts. I think end of this year or beginning next year is when the enforcement will start. I think right now it just still falls under hobbyist rules of under, I think, 250 feet or something like that. Uh, you have to stay away from where small aircraft like to fly. So it's that's that's the last I heard of it. That's how I still see people using it. Uh, but bigger companies uh, like CBS will only use people who are actually certified uh, just to play it safe. They won't, you know, use amateur hobbyists. And as far as I know, there's only one guy in Chicago. So for a short time, it may be lucrative to uh, go through the effort to get a license if you're really into quadcopter flying, because there's probably not a lot of people. I think L.A. has quite a few people. Uh, but I think like most of the Midwest, a lot of areas don't have anyone that is uh, certified to do it. And if they start enforcing those rules, it'll become a much bigger deal uh, to try to find someone to fly a quadcopter, which even if you have to hire somebody, it's still going to be cheaper than an actual hol- helicopter. So um, yeah, uh, I for helicopter pilots uh, who mostly get hired as camera guys. Well, there's a and I just saw it a little bit ago. It's really kind of dated and funny, but it was from the 90s. And it's Jean-Claude Van Damme explaining like (laughs) new camera movements for the future. And they actually have a gas powered, uh, you know, uh, sort of RC helicopter that they're flying the camera around with. And then they have a wire system where they're running stuff across on a a wire (laughs) tether line. Oh, man, it's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) It kind of made me laugh. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I tend to not fly quadcopters simply because I don't want to crash something that's very expensive. And I tend to hire an expert to do so. Uh, Licensing wise, I haven't paid much attention. I probably should to licensing. (laughs) I generally just look for someone who has a lot of experience flying them. So that way it's not a problem. I wanted to bring up this E1 camera that I was talking about for just a second here though. Uh, If you look at this, this is basically version one through version three of that. And as far as form factor is concerned, the, the X5 and X5R are basically in this same design envelope. The only difference with that versus the E1 is that the E1 actually has a small screen on the back of the unit. So mm-hmm. uh, you can actually do a little bit of stills and... and you can kind of use it like a GoPro. Exactly. With with that screen on the back. Like yeah, a GoPro so. with a backpack on it. And that's the thing about a GoPro. Like you, you can use your phone which is kind of a pain, or if you have the backpack, you can basically get an idea of what your framing is and then just go leave it alone. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. hoping that's where the E1 fits in. Now, I should stop talking about that because we've got a lot to cover here. We do have a lot to cover. Next Gosh. thing on the list is actually from Canova, and these are kind of disappointing. Devin and I were discussing this uh, before the show, but uh, Canova has a couple of new upgrades that are available for their K1 through K5 sliders. Uh, if you're not familiar with Canova, they were well-known for having the first linear bearings in a low-budget slider system. Uh, the K1 through K5 both have that linear tracking system that gives you really smooth moves, but 
there isn't sort of any friction system to go along with that. Now, it looks like they're introducing what we've seen before on the Shark S1 slider, one of my personal favorite sliders on the market, by adding a flywheel with a pulley-geared uh, sort of belt to this. Mm-hmm. So that way, when you have starts and stops, you have to turn the flywheel in order to ramp up, and then, of course, you have to slow the flywheel down in order to stop. Now, if you've ever used a slider without a flywheel... You have to have extremely steady hands in order to get it. Otherwise, it's just going to be shaky as all get out. It doesn't look very good. You you need to have magic DJ hands. Well, my hands are not even that magical. Um, (laughs) I was frustrated with uh, lower price sliders for a long time, and it forced me to use the the Kiesler sliders, which I don't really care for that much because that one's a friction-based system as opposed to Mm -hmm. a weighted system. Once I got the Shark S1, I think two years ago now I've had it, that thing is amazing. Best slider mm-hmm. I've ever used, period, in that price range, and probably better than the the same priced or higher priced Kieslers. Though they are expensive, though. That's uh, I think the Shark S one's like six ninety nine for the small model, and my larger model is somewhere in the uh, nine hundred range. So it's spendy. Sure. But what else is, is spendy is the freaking upgrades for the Canova slider. Uh, yeah, I've got the price uh, here. The flywheel being two hundred dollars. I mean, I, and Canova, like you said earlier, was known for having some uh, interesting features at such a low price point. Uh, this flywheel, though, is not cheap. And but the flywheel is what you're talking about that allows such smooth movement. Uh, the inertia it takes to spin something. And there's a, phys- a physics thing in it called unsprung mass or something like that. That's over my head, but. Uh, having to spin that up and then also the inertia that yeah. uh, carries through it to spin down makes it incredibly easy to get great slides out of it. That and then in their panning system, which is a looks like a belt driven panning system, is $370. So th- those upgrades, it's it, it kind of puts in a price point where you're like, well, there's others, you know, uh, I guess you could say higher quality names, higher quality components that, you know, I could buy for these kind of prices that come with these features. So the panning system, I don't think it actually uses a belt. I think it uses a a rod, rod? and then the rod pushes up against a plate that's on the bottom of the camera, and based on the position in the the rod is moved to on either side, it changes the panning of the device itself. You know, so it's kind of an interesting technique. But like you said, three seventy five. That is or three hundred and seventy. That's a whole slider. Yeah, that's that's more than a a slider. Slider. That's yeah. a, right. It, so, so much for being affordable uh, and a cheap option. I um, guess if you've already got one, it's a it's a nice upgrade. But we should probably move on to uh, the new Sony camera. Oh yeah. Okay. Thanks. During our time, <laughs> since we're I'm watching the time carefully here. We're, okay. Next thing on the list here, we've got the Sony A7S as well as the Sony FS5. I know Mitch and I talked about this last episode, but Devin, I kind of wanted to get your input on both of these cameras. I know you're not super excited about the A7S for the most part, but do you have anything you wanted to address while we've got that up on the list? Uh, you know what? Um, it's 120 at HD at 1080p. That's what I'm excited about, and I'd like to see how that five-axis uh, stabilization works. Is it as good as the Olympus? Is it better than the Mark II? Um, I'd really like to see that. I for a lot of the stuff, the S-log stuff and everything else, I don't find that incredibly interesting. But uh, you know, having that ISO range and everything else, it's I don't think it's worth upgrading. But I think that it's uh, definitely something that is very intriguing. You seem to be unhappy that they still haven't fixed a problem that they had with the original A7S. Oh, yeah. Um, I've got a still image here, and I'll bring that up. Uh, I I kind of talked about this a little bit on the last show. It's sort of a frustrating factor for me. If you've ever used the A7S with an external 4K recorder, uh, the A7S does output 4K but doesn't record internally. Uh, when you do that, your footage is very grainy uh, because you're no longer scaling down to 1080p. You're basically getting... Uh, pretty much one for one out of the sensor, uh, give or take a little bit of scaling, but not as much. Uh, now, this is a still image at 25,600 ISO from 4K footage of the new A7S Mark II. And you can see here that it is mushy and noisy and everything else. I'm sure at. For the 1080- audio listeners, it's pretty pixelated and not in a uh, film grain kind of way, in a RGB blotching kind of way. Yeah, that's a that's a one for one crop, so it's pretty ugly. But the thing is, I'm sure this A7S Mark II looks beautiful again at 1080p, and it's still suffering from the same issue that the A7S 
has. I would gladly mm-hmm. go out in low light and shoot at 1080p with the A7S, no problem. But if I wanted an actual 4K image to use, uh, you start bumping down your ISO max by a uh, wide margin. Uh, also, yeah. they haven't changed the base ISO on this. I, I believe it's still six, 1600. So bring your NDs to the game, buddy, because uh, if you're shooting <laughs> in any regular sort of setting, you're going to need them. Yeah, for sure. And um, then moving on to the Sony FS5. Oh, man, look um, at this guy. He's just driving the driving the show along today, man. Way to go, Devin. All right, what do you got on the S- or FS5? Uh, you know me. I like cameras like this that are kind of small, uh, but they've got more features than a DSLR and more options and SDI outputs and all that kind of stuff, all the kind of stuff that uh, DJ doesn't want to deal with. Uh, it, it's fascinating about this electronic ND filter. It, it When I first saw it, I thought, like, that's so smart. Why hasn't anyone done it before? Because uh, it looks like, by principle, it's just uh, that electronic um, film that, as you apply an electric charge, either becomes clear or becomes... Uh, so they're using, clear. like, an LCD-style... Yeah, uh, it, it's like an LCD style. Maybe we they, we haven't seen it before because it's a struggle to make it super clear so that when you're using lighter ND, you're not also losing detail in it. Um because m- most of the time, you know, they're using glass pieces of ND to do that kind of stuff. But that's what it looks like to me. And I think that that makes it fantastic because it gives you a wide gambit of where you want the ND to fall. It, it acts like a polarizer uh, kind of or a variable polarized ND kind of a thing. So uh, I'm super excited about that. HD to 60 frames, 422 is always great. Dual SD cards is necessary when you're shooting on this kind of level of video production and stuff like that. You know, plus using the same batteries and everything else. Uh, I like the fact that Sony keeps doing this, you know, hey, it's super easy to take this and turn it into a shoulder-mounted camera if you're doing documentary or that kind of work. It doesn't have a built-in shoulder plate, not that you couldn't add one pretty easily, but having that uh, record zoom function and everything else come out on an arm so that you can more comfortably hold the camera and run all of its operations, I like seeing that kind of stuff. So. I'm excited to uh, to rent this for a weekend and play with it and borrow it uh, for sure. I'm not crazy about the lens that they want you to use with it, which unfortunately is like tied to their electronic system because we're back to, hey, this E-mount thing. You know, not a lot of great lenses that we're in love with in the E-mount system. But uh, still, uh, you know, E-mount can be adapted to anything. So, you know, the world is open for you to mold and shape. And I love to little things like the LCD screen being able to move to the back being able to flip on the other side. So without adding a rig to this, it's allowing you to adjust the camera in a bunch of different ways to shoot whatever kind of style you like to shoot it as or whatever works for you, something more compact in front of you, or you want to be comfortable, shoulder mount, and hold the thing for a couple of hours. So I'm enjoying seeing all this uh, coming out of Sony. Uh, Just once again, it's, uh, you know, uh, native ISO 3200 and 14 stops of dynamic range. That remains to be seen because I haven't seen a ton of footage with it, but I'm excited for it. I think it's great. What do you think, DJ? I think it's not a cube, and I'm happy that it's not a freaking (laughs) square box because the 100 and 700 were not not super attractive to me for that reason. Yeah, well, and and the ergonomics, like I'm saying, it seems like they really heard everyone be like, what is up with this box? What is up with this viewfinder stuck in the back that I can't use? And your loop system, which is ridiculously big. It sounds like they've heard all of those complaints finally. They're like, all right, we're going to let you put whatever you want, wherever you want. We're going to let you configure this. Uh, and like, even if you look at it, uh, in the image we have here, uh, the, uh, monitor for it even has a long cable that is coiled up on the body itself to keep it tucked away and nice. But that long cable is more than just to suit it moving forward and backward on the arm or right or left. It's to suit it so that if you really want to throw it far to the left or far to the right, you can put that monitor wherever you want. Cause it is a proprietary cable. So it's nice that they include all this extra length so you can really get it to where you want it to be. So yeah, I'm the, excited. I would love to grab a shoulder plate, plug it on the bottom of this, and really run out and see how this thing uh, performs out in the field. Yeah, the, there are two caveats here that I'm a little concerned about. One is the, this has some cooling issues, so there's a vent system built into it, which could be mm-hmm. an issue with fan noise. Same thing that plagued the C100 and to True. a lesser extent the C300 and so on. Uh, this also 
strangely borrows from Canon in the grip system that they've added to this. Uh, that looks very reminiscent of the C100, C300 series with that like extra pistol that you hold on the side to actuate controls for the camera. No, no, if mm-hmm. I'm really a fan of that, that kind of limits your ergonomics <laughs> for um, you know more of a shoulder rig sort of setup. Uh, I didn't care for that whole grip system on the C100 or C300, but a lot of people really love it. Devin, does, does that going to affect your use of this on a rig? Uh, no, because the fact that it is detachable, and from what I've seen, it seems to use a pretty standard quarter 20 rosette kind of a thing going on. So as far as I see, no, it's it's just one of those that it becomes a little useless because it needs to be tied with a Sony lens, and there's very few Sony lenses that I would necessarily be interested in using. I mean, the one that they want to sell it with uh, for six grand is an 18 to 105 at f4 uh, which is yeah is uh, like i'm glad to see the native iso is 3200 i'm sure it's going to you know perform pretty well in low light but f4 is kind of pushing it um even if you do have a super 35 sensor so yeah i didn't see whether this is using bmi in the sensor tech or or what they're doing so uh, I'll have to look more into that, but native 3200 ISO kind of screams I can shoot really well in low light, as in mm-hmm. maybe I'm putting this out to compete with the C300 Mark II that's coming pretty sooner. Is it already out? I think it's out, actually. Um, okay, yeah. enough of that. Also, oh, go yeah, ahead. 240, I was just going to say 240 HD video is really cool, too. If you're not concerned about 10-bit 422, and getting 60 frames out of that, and you just wanted the basic 4208 bit, you can get 240 frames in 1080p, which you know heralds back to the older Sony's that that's what people loved using them for was a super cheap high speed camera. So uh, yeah, everything is getting well. high speed anymore. I mean, <laughs> it seems like even point and shoot cameras are getting what 960 frames per second in the rx10 and rx100 if i remember correctly and 240 frames per second in a lot of cameras 120 in the a7s so i mean it it seems like that's just a par for the course with the new sensor tech all right the next thing on the list and this is really weird really really weird in fact um at first i was very confused by this i talked about in last show and i was underwhelmed and didn't know how it worked because i just (laughs) found it and it was thrown at me but now I have a little bit more information on this. This is the Kodak Pix Pro SP360. Now, I was trying to figure out last episode how this is a 360-degree camera, and Devin and I were talking about this before the show, doing a little bit of research on it to get a better handle on what the heck this thing is doing. And it turns out that it's filming a spherical video, and you get your 360-degree view by actually stretching it out in software to give you that view. And in the show notes, if you guys go check that out, I've got a link to the actual video of this thing uh, on YouTube so you can see what that stretching does to the video quality. But 279, what do you think, Devin? Perfect for your present for the next Oculus Rift developer? (laughs) Sure. I mean, uh, it's one of those where I feel like it has a narrow... Uh, usable application. I mean, well, as as things keep moving towards this virtual reality, um, I could see people making rigs where they try to use two of these, uh, you know, that are supposed to be spaced apart a certain amount and all that kind of stuff. I see it being used in that kind of situation, uh, and it's small enough that and cheap enough that I could see a lot of people who are interested in that spherical video. I know um, uh, that one handheld camera is really popular. Uh, I forget what it's called, Mo- something with an M. Uh, that does 360 video. This one's only doing half of a sphere from what I can tell. Um, like the demo video you show, you can't see the bottom. So, uh, and while the other handheld one does both sides cause it's got two cameras on it. Uh, like I said, it's something I could never see myself using. I'm not saying it's not cool and I don't like it. It's just one of those that as a GoPro competitor, maybe ish, uh, the quality is lacking and it's going to be when you consider stretching, you know, whatever that is, a two millimeter lens or whatever the equivalent of that is. Um, you're, you're always going to have softness. Things are going to be stretched. The software is going to stretch. It's not going to look great. The bit rate's going to be low, uh, but I guess definitely sure for Oculus development and, you know, to cover this or that, it just right now, it seems like a stepping stone. I feel like after a while, these cameras are really going to start to be really cool in terms of the quality and being able to just kind of set up a camera and be like, you can look wherever you want and capture the environment. 
uh, for telling a story, I don't see it as being useful. But as an action camera, if the quality improves, I could definitely see something where GoPro would start to be like, hey, we could do this too and start trying to do wider angle videos. Because GoPro is always trying to keep the quality and sharpness high while giving you a wide view. And GoPro found a happy medium between the two. Kodak is going, we're not even going to do that. We're just going to go for as wide as we possibly can. And um, well, and, and GoPro so, kind of has a solution already with that. What I think it's eight what, or sixteen thousand dollars. No, it's not. It's is. not really twenty thousand. I was doing the math on that to populate that entire um, circular ring. device, that ring, whatever you want to call the the controller thing. You can basically do that for about three to five grand. No, no, that's yeah. not right. That can't. Yeah, yeah, you can. So if you do it with the cheapest GoPro possible. Oh, with the cheapest yeah, GoPro. Okay. If you go get the silver edition, you could completely populate that entire thing. I think I figured out it was like $3,000. So that would be the very lowest level price. And then if you go up from there to like a, a black edition, obviously you're then you're talking what Devin's talking. It's going to get yeah. really expensive. But <laughs> it's getting real expensive. Even a bunch of silver strapped around like that and stitched together yeah. is probably going to give you better good. footage than this Pix Pro. And check out the video. Um, showing it a video within a video on YouTube is not the easiest way to demo something like this for you guys. But it's okay, but it's pretty blocky and the software uh, the amazon review there's an amazon review that's great that shows the software that's required to kind of break the video out and every time you do it it goes from looking sort of okay to looking somewhat awful looking back like a 240p video off youtube oh yeah it's (laughs) it's pretty nasty goes back to 2007 youtube is what it does (laughs) so but speaking about cameras and their caliber, the Blackmagic Mini Ursa just had some huge updates. Yeah, if it ever gets released, Devin, right? tell me more it, about the Ursa because we've been, what, sitting on this for a year and some change? It hasn't been released. Um, uh, the Ursa, it's very clear that Blackmagic wants to break into the, um, uh, as we call it, ENG market, the electronic news gathering market, uh, with the Ursa Mini. And how they plan to do that is uh, they if you buy the PL mount system for this, you can remove the PL mount and put on a B4 mount. For those that aren't familiar, a B4 mount is what most of your you know news camera guys have on their shoulders is uh, those Panasonic and Sony's largely. That's pretty much all they use is Panasonic and Sony's in that market. Uh, they use a B4 mount. And, um, and so what they've added to the Mini Ursa is not just a B4 mount, uh, as well as the software to properly scale the sensor because news cameras either come in half-inch or two-thirds-inch sensor size. Uh, and so they've got software that will let you adapt to both of those formats, as well as they've added uh, the controller. And so all these lenses have a powered servo for zoom, for iris, uh, sometimes for focusing and all that kind of stuff. And they use a special B4 connector to provide power as well as communicate to the camera, hey, this is the zoom I'm at, this is the iris I'm at, or even allow the camera to control those things. So what uh, Blackmagic's doing here is they're like, hey, you can put a shoulder mount on the bottom of our mini Ursa and then take the old ENG lens you've got, HD lenses. I mean, some of these lenses... uh, marked for hd footage go for maybe two grand and they're usually something like uh, eight millimeter to 80 or something like that sometimes they'll have a uh, 2x uh zoom in them that you can flip and it'll double whatever you've got in it um all kinds of stuff like that really fancy lenses they can go up to like 10 grand 20 grand depending on fuji or whoever you buy it from but uh that combined with you know the gold or v mount on the back this basically looks like a, a smaller and lighter Sony or Panasonic ENG camera uh, that will fit more formats. Now, it doesn't have all the options that your you know, ENG cameras might have. A lot of them will have time code generation, uh, you know, time code references. I think they uh, actually did add, uh, if I, I watched the video uh, and they added uh, the time code and the, the video out in the same stream on the same SDI uh, plug. Right. So you can so, get time code out of this and use it as a clock. Yeah, and and on top of that, uh, you know, all the other features that you get with this camera, as they keep putting it, a modern camera, uh, as if like the ENGs haven't been like updating as time has progressed. If if you really look hardcore at an ENG camera and setting up a lens on this kind of camera, you're gonna notice you don't get all the options you got with your old ENG cameras because I mean a lot of them will have um, 
uh, four XLR inputs, depending on, they all get packaged differently, depending on how you shoot and how you do it. But on the base level of just, I need a really great looking camera, this mini Ursa will fit that. It'll do 4K, which very few broadcast cameras will, especially at this price point. And as well, you know, Blackmagic's trying to market it as, hey, put the PL mount back on it. And now you've got this high dynamic range film camera that you can go shoot a high profile commercial or you can put the B4 mount and you can go in and gather news, you know, send it back to the truck, whatever that you normally do. So uh, it's just really interesting because uh, it's really it looks like they're really trying to pull people over from the Sony and Panasonic market in this demographic. People who have a couple of these lenses, they have a telephoto, they have a wide and they shoot this kind of stuff all the time and they like their lenses and no other camera system really does B4 mounts except for like super small micro four thirds. You know, I see people adapted to a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, but that doesn't have all your XLR and all your professional stuff you're looking for. Well, they did just announce a bunch of uh, Sony adapters for B4 uh, so now you can have that yeah. same sort of lens information coming back to you that you have with uh, this sort of pre-built basically set up. And the prices aren't too bad. Mm-hmm. I think they have one for Sony. Uh, there was one announced for Micro Four Thirds bodies as well. So, And I think those are 500 600 bucks. So it is giving you a little bit more expansion options. But this is all speculation because um, this camera, if they don't actually release it. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time you've seen a camera that's been announced for, what, a, like a year and a half or better? And they're actually upgrading the camera and the camera hasn't even been released yet. How do you upgrade something that hasn't been released? You're basically just giving the same thing. It's it's not, it's a side grade because you've just waited for so long that now there's more technology that's available to put in. You can shove into it. Yeah. So, uh, but it's, I guess, you know, at least they're, if the camera does come out, it'll be great. And it's good to see that the company's telling people about their pre-orders or whatever, being like, yeah, we're making your pre-order even better. Uh, <laughs> so I guess that's good too. But uh, it's it's one of those things that is really interesting from Blackmagic because they've already penetrated a lot of the back end of newscasters who are building studios today. I mean, a lot of people who are using uh, Grass Valley or whatever it's called, older systems like that, Avid and everything else, um, People who are building new studios now or are building new trucks for handling on-location news, uh, they're using Blackmagic parts because they're so much cheaper. And even if uh, you know their Blackmagic monitor uh, dies after two years, they'll buy another one and they'll still be one-fourth the price of a Marshall. So it's one of those kind of things where they've really penetrated the back end of SDI converters, of uh, routing management, broadcast, uh, compression, and everything else. And now Blackmagic's attacking the other end of the cable, which is all the cameras that go out from the truck to record and capture all this kind of stuff. So well, kind of interesting some, to see how that'll develop. They're doing some pretty sexy stuff with their switchers, too, where you know you have a, an extra port that's ready for fiber when you're ready to upgrade. You don't just have to stick yeah. with it. And they're, you know, they have upgraded S, uh, their SDIs to 12G as opposed to just 4G. So, I mean... Those are a lot of things that make it really sexy, and you're right, Devin. Well, and at the price point, yeah, yeah. oh my at gosh, the price point. Even and and Black Magic doesn't make uh, doesn't make crap. Their quality control is good, but it's like even if their quality control was a little off and it wasn't perfect, every single product you bought, it's so cheap that almost after a few years, you wouldn't be that mad if you had to buy another one. Well, and there's for some long runs, and this is kind of getting into studio tech, but uh, they've got some really great. Uh, 4k to ip transfer switches that just do an amazing job getting stuff like across the studio or wherever and you can go to fiber you can go to ethernet all kinds of options that make it really well and the new the new standard for a i don't even remember the uh, initialism now asoc or something like that the, the new standard for uh cameras communicating with each other and switchers is all going to be an ip based system uh some somehow over tcip or something like that which fiber is a beautiful backend because it's already had years of infrastructure experience being the backend of computer networks and with the new camera standards moving over to an IP system yeah. it just makes more sense that uh, that Blackmagic is ready for that standard to start coming out so they can be like hey our switcher can jack into a couple of uh, optical cables and you can have an optical network through your entire building that then any camera can jump on at any point and you can have 10 cameras going where normally you'd have to route SDIs to each camera. Oh man, that's super sexy. But 
when will they actually get the cameras out? Because right? I will again poo-poo <laughs> Black Magic for their lack of support on cameras, their lack of quality control, and the fact that they rush to market, but then like things aren't necessarily fully baked. And Devin, you probably I'm, talked about that yeah. more than once, right? With uh, you know, time yes. sinks and everything else that we're giving you hell. And I'm kind of curious, uh, why the big sale on the Pocket Cinema camera? Because I could have sworn that was because they're going to release a version 2. I mean, I bought one because the price is too good to pass up, but now it's back up to 1000 bucks. There's no version 2 out, and it seems like nothing else has been done with it. It just seems like the strangest marketing move ever to drop the price by half for a month and then go back to full price for a year. I, it just it, it seems odd to me. So who knows what's going over uh, that or the marketing marketing uh, team over there is just super ambitious about their engineers. They're like, "Yeah, we'll get this done by summer." Hey, you guys got that done yet? They're like, uh, "We we just made up the name. We don't even have a camera yet. <laughs> what are you doing?" <laughs> now, speaking of price drops, here the last thing on our list, actually not the last thing, but one of the last things is the uh, Ninja Blade and Ninja Two. Uh, these have been around for a, quite a while now. They're getting a little long in the tooth. I think three mm-hmm. years they've been out now and uh, yes. they've dropped uh, the blade down to 495 and the ninja 2 down to 295 this uh i believe the ninja 2 was at six or seven hundred dollars when it first came out uh what do you think devin uh, i know i i have one of these and i pointed and to it, it before the show it's like sitting right over there in a box and i get it out if i need to capture something from an hdmi port and that's about it because honestly uh, they're clunky. They're not my thing. I am just fine with the recording that I sure. get in camera. And I know you mentioned backups. Do you really think yeah. it's practical to carry one of these around as your number one backup system for your uh, camera? Uh, yeah, I, I think it depends on your workflow. Uh, one of those things is that uh, being able to pull out a hard drive, shove it into a computer and edit right away and have something produced the same day is one of those things I've run into a few times at different studios and different things like that. So it, it becomes necessary in that regard. Um, as well as to there's sometimes there's high profile clients where, uh, we're recording a stunt or something. And I go, I only get one take at this. And along with having multiple cameras on one of the cameras, I'll try to also have a different way to record it. Whether I go to a laptop with a capture card or I use a deck like this. Uh, well, the reason why it's interesting, cause we talked before about that really cool, um, black magic recorder system the video assist uh which advertises hey we've got this great 1080p is that even out yet either no i don't think that one's out either yeah screw you black magic is that a pre-order is that hold on a second i gotta figure this out is the video is still in pre-order on bnh yeah that thing looks super sexy too it i don't know if it'll ever hit the freaking market Grr. Well, here's well, and, and here's the give and take, and maybe that's why uh, they're doing these price drops is in preparation for that because the Black Magic does have 1080p. It's supposed to be a great looking screen, which no one's seen yet, and it'll do SDI to HDMI conversion, uh, which not a lot of them will do. Now, uh, you got to record to an SD card, and uh, the only feature it really has is a histogram. Now, you compare that over to something like the Ninja Blade, which is only HDMI, uh, though for, I think, 300, they do sell converters that just, like, neatly stack into the back of it. Uh, But there's a few things that you get that you don't get from Blackmagic that I think are crucial for a monitor. And while the Ninja Blade is only 720p and it's not 1080, you're going to get waveforms, you're going to get false color, you're going to get focus peaking, um, as well as making proxy files. Uh, For me, one of the biggest things is that it'll do a a 2-2 pull-down and a 2-3 pull-down which for some cameras, especially the DSLR market, they output, you know, 60i, not 24p. And they're, they're up converting basically to 60i in terms of frame rate up converting, not resolution. And this guy will fix that problem when it records so you'll get a matching 24p file. And that's something that the Blackmagic hasn't advertised, and I don't think the Blackmagic does. So it's one of those that it becomes more important to you um, is like, hey, does the resolution matter to you? And do you find yourself uh, needing to convert between HDMI and SDI very often? Because it'll go both ways, which most standalone converters won't. So that's kind of a big selling point for 500 bucks. But then at the same time, I go, if I'm out in the field, like I like having zebras and everything else. And not every DSLR comes with zebras. Uh, you know, things like the GH4 and GH3 has made DSLR people, uh, you know, spoiled. Uh, by having a basic thing like showing where clipping is. Uh, but it's it's one of those things that I like having all those features. I like having a button on a monitor that I can push to do a one-to-one zoom or a two-to-one zoom. Uh, and so far, Blackmagic doesn't seem to have any of those features. 
as well as I like standardized hard drives, especially if you're sitting in one spot, you could put a mechanical hard drive in there and record ProRes. Uh, the so mechanical that's hard drive, though, man, that is a little weird. Um, if if it's you're spinning, not moving, the spinning yes, in it, there actually makes you kind of it does this gyroscopic motion to your camera. So when you're holding it, like that rotating yeah. hard drive, like actually makes your camera feel strange in your hand if you have it mounted to your yeah. rig. Um, the blade, though, <laughs> does have a beautiful screen. I will give it that. The Ninja Two, yeah. uh, the screen is sort of awful. Um, you might but it is well. smaller, too, if you're interested in having a smaller screen. I mean, the Ninja 2, they don't even advertise it as a monitor, even though technically it is. Yeah. They kind of just advertise it as a normal deck. And keep in mind, too, that's the same price now as their, like, mini Ninja, whatever they call that, the Ninja Star that doesn't have a screen. Yeah. Um, the same price as that now, so it's almost worth it to buy that. But I switched over when I was using this, and the reason I was is there was a couple of projects I was working on where they were editing Avid, and they wanted DNX HD uh, output files. Mm -hmm. So... As opposed to trying to transcode and post, I could use the Ninja and record directly to the format that they were asking me for and send it off to them. But it is really nice with an SSD slapped in this guy, like a 500 gig SSD. You grab that, and Devin's absolutely right. And if you need to go straight from recording to editing, super smooth transition. You don't even have to have a extremely pro uh, processor intense application to handle it because you know you're not using a high compression codec. So it's not like pulling stuff off of an a uh, micro SD card or a um, SDXC card and, right. and shoving it into your editor. And then your editor's chugging along once you get up to like three or four streams. Now this is nice and smooth, painless workflow. It's like working with almost uncompressed footage. It's, I mean, I, I, it's not almost uncompressed cause that's not really true, but it's, uh, it's a less uh, processor intensive codec that they're using. So it makes it really nice to work with the size though. Ah, these guys are, freaking monsters the the blade they is are. like this big man it's huge it's five inches as yeah. opposed to the ninja 2 i think it's like a 3.8 or something like that but uh five inches is larger than i want for a monitor anyways uh but part of it too is they're trying to make it uh you know you're gonna fit an entire hard drive inside of it so i can understand it being thicker than a lot of the other options uh as well as then you got to imagine you're gonna put batteries on the back of that as well which is you know not going to help the case at all. Now, I heard rumors that the small HD uh, monitor that was announced a little while ago, that 5-inch monitor that's super tiny and kind of the size of like an iPhone, was going yeah. to be able to record internally. Uh, did they ever – I haven't been paying attention to small HD since they got bought. Did they ever release a version of the – what is it? I think it was a 502. That, 502, yeah. Yeah, that had recording in it because – I know they were talking about something like that when I went to their booth last year or the year before, but I haven't seen anything exactly come out of that. That would be my ideal. Like if you're going to record something externally, I want something that's super skinny, is capable of recording, and is a beautiful screen. Because if it has a beautiful screen, chances are I'm going to use it just like a monitor, and then I'm going to have it there anyway, and it's going to be plugged in anyway, so I might as well record to it anyway. Well and I would, I would like one with a decent loop as well. That's one thing I always liked about the 502 is how they design like a traditional loop. Uh, you, normally, your ENG cameras, when you look down the viewfinder, there'd be a right angle in it because the right angle actually houses a tiny like CRT television. And then it would have a mirror so that you can, you know, uh, focus on it easier because it's further away from your eye. As opposed to now, we usually use a lot of optics and stuff like that because we're right on top of the LCD screen. Uh, so I like the way that 50, the 502 made that kind of sideways loop. So it was very small profile and it was easy to kind of line up next to your camera and not take up a lot of space yeah. as opposed to a lot of people with um, four inch monitors uh, or God forbid, five inch monitors that uh, with that loop on top of it is the size of the camera basically sitting next to it. So I really appreciate that design. You're right. If that could record some footage as well, that would be a really cool device. But well, And that's what I was hoping we were going to get it. from the Blackmagic monitor was... A device that had a beautiful screen, IPS display, you know, cell phone sized, records its own, you know, dog food. So you don't have to worry about feeding it all the time. You know, it's, <laughs> oh man, that would be, that would be ideal. And then give it something common like a LP6 battery or an NP battery so that I don't have to worry about carrying a bunch of weird extra batteries around with it. That would make yep. my freaking day. Now, Devin, we've <laughs> covered a lot 
over yeah, this we have. cast. Jeez. Oh man, we've really nailed that. Uh, I've got a few other things on the list, and one of them was that sensor info about uh, Canon's latest announcement: 120 megapixel and a 250 megapixel sensor. Uh, I don't know. Let's just skip that this episode. Um, sure. Also, the Swiss Tronics batteries. Great, you've created a battery that splits in half. Good job, man. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, that well, that's, said. that's just for FAA regulations. The reason why it splits in half is because there's rules that I've never heard been enforced, but there are rules that lithium ion because of thermal runaway and it can explode. The airlines don't like you carrying on a large uh, lithium ion battery. So this is to try to circumvent that by allowing you to split your battery in half so that you can carry both uh, on the plane separately so that uh, you only have a small explosion, not a big explosion, if your battery breaks. I'm pretty sure I've violated those rules a number of times with large batteries in my bag. <laughs> I didn't even know those well, were a thing, so like no one's ever pulled my card on that. So I, I, No, no, no. Well, and the only ones they know for is your giant gold mount and V-mount. That's the only ones where they'll... If they were going to, it needs to be that size for them to recognize and go, oh, this is a problem because this is a lot of lithium ion in one casing. And so in order to follow FAA regulation, they're allowing you to separate it. Like I said, I've never heard of anyone actually getting their gold mounts pulled because lithium ion, they have lithium ion ones. But I do know of a lot of shooters to just try to prevent the whole problem together, only uh, fly with uh, the nickel cadmium or... Um, uh, nickel metal hydrate or whatever yeah. the, the old-fashioned lead batteries uh they only fly with those and those could be as big as they want because those don't suddenly rupture and explode like lithium ion does so uh but of course people would love to fly with lithium ion because it's lighter and more efficient and so uh they're just trying to find a way to do that with an expensive price tag of 700 dollars uh that just probably doesn't apply to most people yeah i'll keep those <laughs> listen to this podcast i'll keep those things in the show notes just in case anybody's really dying to find out more about them but uh <laughs> otherwise everything we've discussed is always in the show notes guys uh special thanks to Devin this week for actually helping me put the rest of these together because i was kind of struggling to write everything as he was also struggling <laughs> to write everything but Devin, you have anything else you want to cover before we get out of here man no, I think we did a great job, and once again, we're only slightly over time, so I'm happy. Holy cow, are we power talking? All right, yes. where can they find you, Devin, if they are looking on the social medias? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, on MaverMC. I, I've been slowly actually tweeting one or two things, so you can go there for more of that. All right, guys, you can also find this podcast anywhere podcasts are distributed, including SoundCloud and iTunes. Be sure to write a review on iTunes because it costs you nothing, but it helps us a lot. Also, swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com. I'm actually starting to write some stuff again, and Devin, if I can talk him into it, might even be doing some <laughs> video reviews for the site. So look for those coming in the near term. Anyway, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob. Podcast.